Morgan Wallen, who who is who just came out with an album called Dangerous. He's like the big uh, the biggest star in country right now. And it was a double album. And I was like looking at the sequencing and I was looking at the singles that he came out with beforehand. And the first two singles are like in the middle of the album and they're back to back. And then the set, the two singles after that are near the front of the album. And you know, I'm not trying to put like my tin hat on here, but I just feel like that was like done thinking about streaming. Like not only was it a double, double album, whatever that means in 2020, you know, but like a, a long album with like 30 songs, but also just the way it was sequenced, particularly in regards to the singles. When I think about the sequencing of that album, I think about that streaming had to have some sort of influence in like their thinking and like trying to get those extra plays for songs that weren't even singles. But in a, in a funny way though, I feel like the super long album as playlist thing, which is kind of what those are almost, I mean, it is a different relationship to that, to like the album as to the album form i guess because some of those things some of those albums are so long and also like so it's funny right so if you think about like the great double albums of history um of previous history and and um they tend to be the 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 rep is usually this is a band stretching out letting its freak flag fly like (laughs) trying a little bit of this a little bit of that so you've got you know, uh, the Beatles White Album, which is all over the goddamn place. You've got, um, I don't know, uh, uh, Physical Graffiti by Zeppelin, which has all kinds of experiments. London Calling, which actually is fairly consistent. So they were like, no, 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 we messed up making a big sloppy album. Let's try again with Sandinista. Um, <laughs> yeah. Try. Uh, I, would, I would say that, like I would say like Biggie's like Life After Death is like is a double album, and it, it's big and kind of messy and full of skits and not as cohesive and strong as uh ready to die but also full of hits but like once again like him veering off into sort of like different genres still all within the realm of hip-hop but definitely kind of veering off in different ways yeah and so they tend to be more aesthetically capacious i guess is is my is my gut similar you know my personal favorite double album who's gonna do zen arcade uh (laughs) right so noisy noisy album uh (laughs) Um, great production. Shouts out to Spot. Uh, so, um, the thing that's interesting about the, these kind of huge albums now, these like four streaming albums, uh, in some ways they're, I feel like they're almost opposites in that they are incredibly, for the most part, um, aesthetically cohesive, almost to the point of like exhaustion. Oh, 100%. It's like, yeah. Because they don't, it's almost like a, like a radio format decision, right? You know, there's this whole thing in radio where like they don't want, if people will stay on a radio station until a song comes on that makes them switch it off and then they're no longer listening and then you can't get them back again until the next time they interact with it. And so like, I feel like some of those Drake albums are like intentionally designed to have slight variations on one sound and vibe so if you just throw them on there's nothing that's going to break you out of that space so in some ways there the, it is a to it, it is a similar length but it's a very different approach to what having a bunch of music put together in a single co- coherent whole has to function like yeah because any too much variation any weird songs the yeah. kind of weird songs that were like the meat of I don't know, like most double albums previously, sure. would would break the flow and you'd leave. 
Well, you, and that's why even like Hotline Bling is like the end of some of those, you know, it's, it's the last track of whatever uh, views from the six. Basically, what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that once again, it's another argument for while maybe the album sticks around, a lot of these artists aren't thinking about the album as this, you know, capital A album, cohesive work of art, and more thinking about streaming and a consistent sound to keep you listening. And that was that's definitely the case with Dangerous, like Morgan Wallen. I mean, there's a lot of great songs on there. I'm actually a pretty huge fan of him when it comes to the pop country but listening to 30 songs of that is it and they're all they're all like two and a half three and a half minutes all kind of got the same sort of lyricism you know the same sort of themes there's not a lot of veering off it's, it doesn't feel like a like a visionary letting your freak uh letting your freak flag fly as you said sort of approach it's definitely like let's just throw 30 songs on and like see what sticks and keep people listening well i mean and that's the other thing i think that's a fundamental change which is that the proposition and the way that you reach out to listeners is also fundamentally changed by the streaming paradigm right right where it's like previously you had to convince someone to buy 20 songs and that was always going to be cost more and so in some ways it's like they had to be good and they had to be a reason for them to buy it. But now in some ways the cost is all on the artists, right? And it doesn't cost the listener anything to listen to more or less of this music. And so the risk of like, if they skip for the risk, yeah. But just like, you know, kind of back to that, like a central harmonica point about like being able to edit the albums yourself. It's like, if they don't listen to half the album, who cares? Who, who cares? Wallen doesn't care. Like, drake doesn't care it it doesn't it doesn't fundamentally it doesn't affect anything yeah um yeah. and the other thing you, you get that's why also you get like the the four albums a year i mean even taylor's taylor swift has like you know the the a, adjustment to the streaming regime of dropping two albums in a year which is unheard of for an artist of her level yeah yeah, it's a good no, point. All good points. Definitely all good points. That's like a Beatles level. Like, she's one of the biggest stars now. To release two new albums of material in a year is just her adjusting to streaming. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good points. Good points. Hi, it's Money for Nothing. Welcome back. I'm Saxon Baird with Sandbacker as always. We're the podcast about music and capitalism. Please rate and review us if you haven't. I'm talking about this at the top of the show because we got a lot of things in store for you in 2021. We're going to be doing some new things and expanding the quote unquote content. And we'd love to get more listeners and spread the gospel. So one way to do that is to give us a nice review and rate us on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So today we are tell go- a friend. Yeah. Tell a friend for sure. Tell a friend, tweet about it. Ask a punk. Ask, a- <laughs> yeah, ask, ask a punk. A punk. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to be talking consent decrees today what the hell is that and how does it have anything to do with music well we'll be explaining that on the second half of the show but perhaps unsurprisingly it has a lot to do with the bureaucratic web of archaic laws around licensing and royalties uh and it's so tangled that the government essentially decided to not touch an 80 year old set of laws i guess you can call them laws uh after originally setting out to update them uh, the web was too tangled, but we'll, we'll go ahead and uh, talk more about that in the second half of the show. But first, I wanted to just dive into some housekeeping. Uh, Sam, did you happen to see that King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, that wild rock collective out of Australia, 
has a new project called bootlegger where basically they uploaded the master recordings of nine albums uh, a lot of them are just like live records and basically encourage anyone any of their fans interested in re-releasing them in however way they they see fit so that means doing different cover art remixing the sequencing of the tracks maybe putting like live tracks from one album with like recorded tracks from the other yeah my understanding is it's not just like making new cover art or new track listing it's like they, they say that you can take these and make physical things to sell as long as you yeah. give them some to also sell because that's cool as long, and they're like you know send us as many as you think is reasonable and I kind of like I love this idea, and it it, it it's cool because it, it's exactly the kind of thing that like um you know in in a, in a world where like anyone can stream anything, um in some ways like any kind of bringing value and uh like bringing value into actual objects is very rare for music things, and so in some ways saying that like yeah you could burn this, but like also you can mess with this in any way you want to and if that makes you money that's sick just make sure you send us some because if it's sick and you're making money probably people who want king gizzard stuff go looking for us first and not for you sure um sure and and so like and and just in, in general i mean like i feel like it um this idea of like a like music economies rather than like music commodities almost right like they're saying my understanding is like a basic proposition is being like if you're into us enough that you're making and selling your own King Gizzard stuff, probably you're like pretty like we're you're, we're we're vibrating on similar dimensional wavelengths, and like we're trying to create a flow of money through this broader scene, and that anything that creates a flow of money through this broader scene benefits all of us, right? Like. By creating a flow of money, it, cre- it means that it, it supports the record stores, which sell the King Gizzard stuff, which also then kind of create awareness of them, which then allows them to tour, which then allows them to connect with new psych rock bands in various places, which allows them to tour more, right? And it's like the whole thing builds on itself. And so, in fact, by saying, instead of saying this is a really limited commodity and the way we're going to make money is by kind of almost like a creating a dam on the commodity and then... Um, like letting out little bits of water through that dam in a controlled way. This is kind of based on the premise that like that dam exploded. <laughs> the commodity is everywhere. There's no way that we can control this from a from a from a position of um of scarcity. Instead, it's saying like we're post scarcity. Yeah. So like let's all try to build <laughs> build a world together. A microtonal psych rock odyssey world <laughs> i like love it i love it but on the other hand it is kind of creating a scarcity because you because it's definitely or it's like taking the the culture around like record obsession and scarcity and that sort of intersection which like definitely exists when it comes to you know oh do you have this rare pressing or whatever and kind of like playing with it because i'm sure there's going to be versions of this where like somebody only creates like 10 of them but the album art is really cool and maybe they just really like nailed the track listing or like whatever there's tabs of acid inside the cassette that they made and it's going to become this really desirable object again but 
I don't know. It wasn't. It, it's more just for the fandom and not necessarily to make a bunch of money. I guess I don't know. It's it's weird. They're kind of playing with that 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 scarcity idea because it, I, yeah, like, you're definitely gonna have some items. I'm sure which are gonna be super limited and people will really want and they just won't be able to have them because you know I made ten cassettes of live in Portland you know, 2017 King Gizzard and like five of them are on the website and five I sold to my friends and that's the end of it, you know? I guess it creates like also like a mythology though too. You know, I'm thinking like WebPoint 1.0 or they have these like dedicated like micro topical like Wolfies. This is that like Wolfies. Yeah, like... yeah, it's Wolfies is a perfect example. Yeah, it's a great example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I was always a shit-stained American flag man myself. Okay, all right, um, all right. Yeah, I mean, but I, I, remember, I remember collecting like weird noise... Like, do you remember the CDs that were, like, not the size of a normal CD, but were, like, smaller than a normal CD? What was that? I never understood that. Real talk, I had, n- I, kn- I knew that that was a it's thing. It's just fucking with the format. I-, I don't know. I had, like, a... Yeah, but you couldn't play them. You couldn't play them on your computer. You could not play them in... Yeah, you couldn't play them in your, in your, in your car either. Okay, we're really dating ourselves. But, yeah, you had to, like, yeah. It, yeah, it, I don't know. Who knows? Whatever. But, I don't know. It was cool. I don't know. It's, like, an art... It's, like, turning into, like, a weird art object and everything. So on the other hand, though, and maybe not to be like a bummer, but I feel like it also sort of speaks to this sort of complete like relinquishing of the demand for any kind of money or even just like a livable compensation to a certain extent, too, when it comes to the selling of music. Like, it, it's just, just like, here, just have our music and do whatever the hell you want with it. Just sell it. it we're not making, you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's almost well, like I think that's the key, right? I think the point is, but what I think you got exactly right when you said it's giving up on making money from selling music. And that is correct, right? That's 100% correct. That's literally what they're doing. They're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, we've already mm-hmm. given up. We've already given up on right. selling music. Why not just admit that we've given up on selling music, right? Totally, and, totally. And so if that's true, right? If, like we've talked about many times in the show, a band like King Gizzard and the King gizzard and the lizard wizard aren't making money they're not making a living off of spotify streams they're making money off of probably some vinyl sales and because people want these desirable commodities that like really speak to them as kind of like an intentionality of consumer rather than this is the only way i can listen to this music and live shows is how they're making money touring and selling merch and so in some ways they're giving up on selling music but the music actually becomes by in a best case scenario for a move like this, right? There's this, they get attention for doing something cool like this. They get fan involved, fans involved and they create an explosion of, you know, best case scenario. People make hundreds of thousands. I mean, this is not going to happen, but you know, hundreds of thousands of like homemade King Gizzard artworks and mixtapes and lps and all of and that it creates a community and it creates a community and all of that then brings attention and potential new audiences to the current point of sale which is the live show and the merch from the live show and so in in a way it's actually fascinating because it, it really it goes back to something we're going to be talking about in the second half of the show which is how music functioned as a commodity prior to the record and early on and in some ways ASCAP which is uh the thing being decreed upon in the consent decree uh was kind of the end of this moment in (laughs) in the early teens in the late teens early 20s but early on basically the way you got money was through selling a piece of sheet music and what you tried to do 
was to make the song get distributed as widely as possible, get as many people to perform and hear the song and engage with the song and get it out there in the world so that wherever you're finally making money, you've got more demand for it. And in a weird way, that's kind of, I mean, in some ways it's a flip side because there the point of sale was sheet music and here the point of sale is the live show but in 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 a lot of ways it's structurally very similar that the more circulation of these yeah for sure of of different versions it doesn't matter because that's not you can have there doesn't need to be a single set album there doesn't need to be a single set thing or artwork because it doesn't it doesn't matter because financially it doesn't matter yeah yeah well it's it's also interesting because you sent me another article to earlier today about tom lair giving all his music over to public domain or something. And maybe you can explain more, but I think it kind of relates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, dear listener, if you don't know Tom Lehrer, <laughs> um, it's deeply nerdy. I grew up, I grew up with Tom Lehrer. They're these like, d- did you, do you know him? Do you know his works, the man's works section? Not really, no, not really. So, <laughs> Tom Lehrer is this kind of like fake showbiz slash folk singer who sings these like really acerbic ironic strange songs um in the 60s and into the 70s he's got hits like poisoning pigeons in the park (laughs) uh dodging the draft at harvard (laughs) what uh the vatican rag which is personal favorite and and of course and he's and he's still alive uh yeah right and so he explain what he did exactly because i'm, I'm not totally clear he, he basically put all of his music or something like into the public domain for access yeah, to yeah. so basically tom lear um these aren't the recordings right because as we've talked multiple times right there's recordings and there's song rights and record labels own masters and re- publishing companies own the song lyrics and music so he's put up all of the lyrics and music for free on his website and basically said that um all lyrics on this website whether published or unpublished copyrighted or uncopyrighted may be downloaded and used in any manner whatsoever without requiring any further permission from me or any payment to me or anyone else so for me to quote the chorus to uh vernon brown previously that would have been me quoting copyrighted material and maybe it's fair use or maybe it's not but someone has rights to it yeah that's complicated right but he said that anyone can use this in any way and again this is the power of if you have control over your music and his kind of thinking is that right he this is in some ways a move to try to extend the um the life of this body of work right that he's this guy that was popular in the 60s and early 70s, probably doesn't have the audience he did before. And mm-hmm. now anyone who's into him can do anything they want to with that, with those lyrics, with that music, which means that they have the freedom to make new works of art out of his works of art. Um, which again, if for him, I think like the satirical spirit that's at the core of this really wonderful, though very nerdy music, <laughs> is like this like critique of power and critique of a lot of American bullshit, yeah. frankly. And he wants that critique to be extended because that's in some ways like his aesthetic artistic mission and like journey over many, many years. And he's like, this is the best way to do it because if it's, I'm not, no one's making a ton of money off the publishing of Tom Lear stuff, but 
the just the basic structures of copyright mean that you have to clear it and pay it and it gets very complicated and confusing so he's just knocking down all those walls as much yeah as he he's can. trying to knock down as much as he can all of the walls yeah and i'd say that like in no way particularly not with him but even with king gizzard i mean in no way is this really going to like affect the bottom line of any of these streaming services but i think it does sort of present a sort of peephole into like a world or a possibility where if artists had more control over their music then like one way to maybe like push back is like well if i'm only making fractions of a cent on spotify then well fuck it let me just take my music off and i'll just like distribute it my own way and like let's have fun with it you know which i don't know uh would be pretty cool <laughs> yeah and and it kind of also gives you a sense of like how radical a gesture you need to make in order to in order to make this stuff accessible, right? Like that there isn't necessarily an easy way to say like, if you're cool and not making a million dollars, like, yeah, yeah, you know, Even like you in a perfect to. world, right? Like if um, Lin-Manuel Miranda decides that his next thing is just the Tom Lear musical and he makes another billion dollars off it like ideally in a perfect world there'd be a way to easily within copyright say like anyone making non-commercial or anyone and i assume and you can put stuff in the cop the common domain but it, you know it, it gets very complicated very quickly and the threat of a lawsuit is big enough that it makes people very nervous and the, the, the threat of a lawsuit is large enough that there's not a culture of like working with people's music this way. And, and by all means, like copyright is, I think it can be an important and useful thing as a way to ensure profits to musicians and to artists and to lyricists for their art, but also it's this whole minefield. Um, and often a minefield that's not as simple as like an artist and like a potential user that as we're about to talk about, there's a whole host of other intermediary um, systems and organizations and uh, legal structures in between those two. And it gets very complicated very quickly. And so the idea that there's ways to do, like Lear says, um, an end run around the copyright laws is really cool. And frankly, like I, I hope that, some people do find cool uses for Tom Lear songs. That'd be dope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I love this idea also that you mentioned about how because it's, you know, there's such a tangled web of, like, getting to that point and there's so, the threat of, like, lawsuits and, and other, like, problems that it – I love this idea of it, how it, it creates a culture then that it goes the opposite way of – imaginative or radical ways in which you can like use your music and like allow people to have access to it that's 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 a great point and you know it definitely will just kind of push artists and push performers and songwriters kind of in the other direction and constantly thinking about it in a more conformed way that ultimately is gonna <laughs> you know put more money in the pocket of publishers and streaming services but before we jump into the second half to talk about this more we have to do one last bit of housekeeping and you sam recently published an article on the baffler yeah big truth this past week back in episode 11 we kind of dived into the music modernization act and the ways that it reflected the kind of overarching power structures of the american record 
industry and music industry and the affiliated industries around those that industry um, in all kinds of complicated ways. And the good folks at The Baffler were kind enough to allow me to kind of dive into that a, a little bit further. Um, and try to explain to the average music listener and uh, reader of The Baffler the very complicated uh, issues and context around the Music Modernization Act. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and... and um, you know, a key part of that actually led in the thinking of that article kind of led into this next section because a, a key element of how what the Music Modernization Act is about. Um, and if for, for kind of a primer on that, go back and listen to episode 11, the Music Modernization Act and the powers that be or check out the, the article in the Baffler is is the way in which publishing is split and organized. And the key part of that is that these two organizations the main performing rights organizations or pros um are under which which collect performance royalties for songs not mechanical royalties which is what the music modernization act is about they the whole setup of this part of the industry and frankly to a certain extent the whole setup of the industry as a whole is based on the fact that the pros are not able to do what they want that they're not able to ask for any amount of money that the right to license a song is not determined in the open or performer song is not determined in the open market. Um, it's determined by a market adjacent, governmentally structured, legally structured, <laughs> independent body or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 it just is like mind, <laughs> mind fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't even just tangle set, set of precedents basically. Um, yeah. In in way and 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 as both the PROs, which is ASCAP and BMI, and the record labels and everyone else in the industry is trying to think about how to transition to this next moment of music streaming and how that might look and how might that might work, um, we figured we would spend a little bit of time talking about what's been happening recently. Um, in some ways, it's a it's an anticlimax in that. Nothing happened in in extremely indicative and fascinating ways, and then also no one knows oh, how to solve this problem. <laughs> yay! And then and then also to kind of go back and 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 talk a little bit about the history of how we got here. Well, you should go ahead and go read Sam's article over at the Baffler. We'll go ahead and put a link to it in the show description. We're gonna take a short break and more when we return. About a week and a half ago, you might have seen headlines about the Justice Department leaving 80-year-old decrees in place around the music industry for now. After a two-year investigation, there will be no changes to the 80-year-old consent decrees that govern two groups that issue license to perform music publicly. You might have like come across this and been like, I don't know what the hell that is, and moved on, or maybe you tried to dive in to the article that you might have seen and been like, I, okay, I still don't understand this. Or maybe you understood it, but I think for a majority of people, it's pretty confusing. And uh, 
Yeah, if you understood it, you you probably need to be listening to us and correcting everything that we say. No, but uh, fortunately for 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 you, listener, uh, Sam is here to <laughs> uh, dive into this. No, we're definitely not going to get it massively incorrect, uh, but it's 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 a tangled web, but it's extremely important, and we're going to give like a little bit of history about these eighty-year-old decrees. What the hell a consent decree is? It sounds so like some Shakespearean or medieval royalty king thing, which <laughs> which it's not, but it kind of is. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're gonna dive into a little bit of history behind all this, uh, what those headlines were all about, and how it has basically shaped the modern structures that determine payouts to artists as we know it today. If that if, if that's correct. Is that correct, Sam? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. We've reached peak money for nothing in that we're now going to talk to you for a little while about um, something that didn't happen and why it's interesting. Yeah, a, no, a, a two-year non-decision. Yeah, so just just a little bit of background before we really dive in. Uh, there was a two-year investigation. No changes were made to this 80-year-old. It's not even a law. It's a consent decree, which we'll probably should define at some point. And I also like this little bit from the LA Times uh, that I read where during those two years, there were over 800 public submissions regarding the possibility of changes to these dissent, uh, consent decrees, as well as a workshop that featured Leanne Rhymes. Okay. <laughs> so basically, like as far as I'm aware, everyone in the music industry, almost everyone at least, wants changes, but no one can really agree how. And the reaction to the news of these this 80-year-old consent decree staying in place was mixed and i'll say though that the digital uh streaming platforms were the ones who were okay with it not being changed which immediately to says to me that they need to be changed yeah so, so basically the thing i feel like here is like these consent decrees are very weird and i think i think you, you were you were not at all overstating the case when you said that this has really shaped the way that music payout structures function. This is a big chunk, a fairly large chunk of the music industry. I mean, these are kind of inexact numbers, but like roughly, to give you a sense of proportion, music sales in 2019, that's downloads, streams, the whole nine, um, brought in roughly $11 billion. And roughly the two main performing rights organizations, that's ASCAP and BMI, brought in roughly or rather, you know, had a revenue, so bringing in and then sending out roughly $2 billion. So this is about 20%, a little bit less, of the total amount of music sold. So that's a big chunk. It's not an overwhelming chunk, but it's a big chunk. But this is sort of, um, the consent decrees are kind of, um, and and the performing rights organizations are kind of a, a keystone for a lot of the kind of large scale infrastructure of the music industry, because they're old enough that when they were put into place, they were like, they were the big kahuna, that this was the primary way that money was being made in the music industry. And a lot of things have been built at built out around it. And so, like you said, Saxon, there were 800 comments. And this is not like, this is not like on a, um, like on Reddit or like on a, on a sports article, like little comments at the bottom. We're talking about like, or even for, for, uh, no, it's just not even like when you send in a comment to like the FCC being like, bring back our internet neutrality. Um, this is like, you know, full legal 50 page 
comments. Yeah, this isn't, you court. know, dear Chuck Schumer, please, like, turn on the tap so I can get an extra $200 to, like, pay for my groceries uh, this month. Thank you. Send email. No, not quite that. Not quite like that. But but also but also send email. <laughs> yeah, but also send email, right. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and sort of uh, kind of like what you're saying, um, the reason that because so many different systems are built around this and it's been in place for so long, every time there's a potential change, like there's a bunch of different parties that could could really like get the pot of gold <laughs> at the end of the rainbow if Truly. things change in their direction. But everyone wants a different change made. And so <laughs> it kind of reminds me, there's this uh, part of a Simpsons episode from like years and years and years ago where um, Mr. Burns gets a physical and he's actually in <laughs> impeccable health. Um, and the doctor tries to explain why he's in such good health. And they're like, well, basically, you have what we call a Three Stooges syndrome, where you have every disease, but see if they're all trying to kill you at once and they can't get through the we door. We call it Three Stooges syndrome. So what you're saying is, <laughs> I'm indestructible. And they just kind of takes these little figurines and jams them all together. Like, see, if any one of them was missing, it would go through the door and kill you. But Three Stooges syndrome... <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Let's they go cancel each it. other out, and that's basically what we have here: is that there's enough different forces all trying to like totally win that at like the you know the top level. Uh, so like the top level take is the government saw what a big decision this was, Not realized good. that a new administration was about to happen. I was like, let's keep the can the down the road. People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saw all the different people who were trying to argue and was just like, uh, maybe we'll like um, not do anything, but like probably some of this stuff needs to be worked out at some point. Yeah, definitely. Well, b- well, before we like dive into like what's at stake here and why there's so many different competing voices in the room trying to wrangle you know, their own interest into whatever comes next once these consent decrees, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, change and are altered. Why don't we go into a little bit of exactly like what it, what, what we mean by consent decrees and the history and then kind of go, go in from there uh, about like what's at stake and, you know, why there's so many co- competing interests here. At the most basic level, right? What we're talking about here are what are called PROs or performing rights organizations. And if you think back to like the basic model of music copyright really quickly, right? Two general streams, one of them publishing rights, that's the song and the lyrics and the like the, the supposed like IP of the song. And the other thing related to the recording, that's the, the master recording um, usually run by labels. So publishing is run by publishing companies and for publishing for a song there's two streams there's mechanicals which is when you make a rec- uh, physical copy of it and you owe money for that and then there's this other stream called performance royalties and that's the money that you owe when you publicly perform a work and helpfully enough the pros the performing rights organizations collect <laughs> the performing rights royalties and somebody else per- collects the mechanical royalties yes and someone else collects the mechanical royalties and when we talk about mecha- and so when we talk about a streaming service, just real quick, I, just a little bit of review. A streaming service pays out for both, which might be a little confusing. But as you once, as you pointed out in a previous episode, an actual like file gets made somewhere where every time you stream a song, 
which then like is falls under some gray areas, but basically falls under mechanical royalties yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. So, so um, I mean, confusingly enough, when you stream a song, everyone gets paid something. Uh, famously, not a lot of something, but because it's a master sure. recording, the record labels get some stuff because it counts as both a performance of the song because it's being performed to you and a yeah. copy of the song being made. And that's different than what radio pays out because, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So radio only pays out, and this is a big deal, right? Radio pays out performance royalties. It does not pay out mechanical royalties because copy isn't made. Right. And it doesn't pay out uh, master royalties, which is a very weird, specific U.S. thing, which in, in a theme we're going to hear a lot about is basically that the radio industry bullied <laughs> the whole system and kind of has so anytime they try to change it it's the record industry versus the radio companies and it's like who's got a bigger lobby right and i and my understanding then is so if you hear a song on the radio whoever the songwriter gets paid but not necessarily the performer if they don't have any songwriting yep. credits on that record that's correct okay okay cool so we've, we've set that we've set that up like okay now Go back to let's go back to 1941 or before then. No, and how no, no. These... we're going we're going way back. We're going oh, we're going way, way back. back. We're okay, going way okay. Back. We're get going into your back time to machine. The beginning, baby. Okay, um, cool. Let's all file into the to the phone booth. Dial the number. Gentlemen, we're history. Yeah, yeah. I feel like yeah. I feel like Bill and Ted is West Coast. Back to the Future is East Coast. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, one takes place in LA. The other one, I don't know, Midwest. Anyways. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> Yeah, where where does where does Back to the Future take? I mean, yeah, it's like someone I mean, nondescript. Think about how he's, think about Actually, how he's sorry, it takes place in Hollywood Studios, but no, but where does it really take? Where no, but think he, he's wearing like a puffy vest. You wouldn't wear a puffy vest in California. It'd be he, too hot. He's wearing a varsity jacket. He, you wouldn't you be too hot? Not if you wore too no warm. shirt underneath it. He's he's wearing a shirt though. He's wearing a shirt underneath. He's not wearing. He's not just wearing a varsity jacket. He's not the Chili Peppers. Like just wearing a varsity jacket and nothing else. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm gonna say like Midwest, East Coast, but anyway, okay, we're going suck. back in time is the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going back to the past, not back to the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like it's New York City. It's like 1905, 1909, 1910, and really, New York City is the center of what's becoming uh, a popular music industry for the first time, really. Both because it's got this really vibrant local scene. You know, it's the nation's biggest city. It's got all these different kinds of people mixing. Theatrical center in and of itself. But also, in this period of time, kind of the the, the height of show business is these national syndicates, basically, that send touring shows or touring performers out on the road. And the offices that move those people around, that hire them and determine their routes. So, And we're not talking about a few people vaudeville which is one of the biggest forms at the time has twenty thousand performers moving across america booked to around a thousand theaters the theatrical syndicates have probably another like which are quote-unquote legitimate theaters that's like uh, more like musicals or plays versus vaudeville which is kind of like individual acts has probably another like five or six hundred theaters across the country so this is a really big this is live only exclusively live performances but operating at a, at a genuinely national level which means that there's like tens of thousands of performers this is also before any kind of mechanically reproduced performance really gets going right so there's if you've got a song right they're popular music publishers they have songs they want them to be hits 
the only way to kind of make a song a hit is to place them with the performer and send them on their way. And they're going to play that song in every single city in America on their two-year-long national tour. And then you hire like 30 people and you can make a song a hit that way. And you could sell a million copies of sheet music, right? And this is, so yeah, so just to be clear, like this is like even pre, like the radio was. Okay. Radio's fairly late, actually. Yeah. Radio's in the tw- in the teens and 20s. Records right. are older than radio. Right. So yeah, so basically that is like the main form about of like hearing a song. Yeah. And you have to hear a song to buy a song. So the publishers are basically, their goal, the whole way they're doing this is they hire people called pluggers right, to basically go from bar to bar singing this song and like Sick job. or if the <laughs> if the bar has yeah but it, it, exhausting these pluggers would hit 12 bars a night i love it and they've got these amazing things they're like okay we took the l down from 35th street to like this dive and then we went to this other place we went to this third place blanks winter garden you know lots of prostitutes there so out of towners came there so you could get that song all the way to ithaca just by performing it there it's like this this network of like new york city turn of the century new york city nightlife which is as like garlic infused flavorful as you could hope <laughs> and you've read a lot about this just through your own research that you you've done uh for your for your phd and like you read these actual like i guess are like journals yeah, from yeah, yeah. these pluggers um shouts out to yeah. the whoever in the 50s in columbia interviewed all these people i mean i don't know if it was at columbia but that is where the oral histories currently reside so yeah yeah, yeah. They interviewed all of these nice. like aging performers nice. in the fifties who were like, back in my day, nineteen oh seven. So basically, the idea was that you'd want a song to circulate as much as possible, um, as widely as possible. So that sounds and similar now today. Sim- it's actually very it's actually very similar today. You want a song to circulate as widely as possible to bring as much attention to the song so that people would buy the sheet music. And to make a song circulate as widely as possible, basically you'd give it away for free in places like New York and places that would get it moving, right? And that held for a while, right? That held from the beginning of the popular American, what you could call the modern American popular music industry, which is like, let's say, 1893, holds to around 1910, 1912, 1915. By that period of time, the entertainment industry is big enough and kind of the assumption that people are going to buy this music is strong enough, right? Like people have gotten used to going out and getting the new hits. You're not trying to convince them to get a new hit because in 1895, you had to convince them like the new music is good. Try a new song. You might like it. By 1915, it's like it's pop music, right? There's new songs. Songs last a hit song lasts two months and then you get a new one. In addition, kind of these popular music performances especially in places like new york though by no means exclusively in places like new york these popular music performances that have been in some ways like pushed by the publishers for like 20 years have grown and like blossomed into like a like a genuinely modern nightlife right like there's dance clubs you're getting the beginnings of jazz and jazz orchestras you've got cabarets where people are going and mixing in all different kind of ways like genuine nightlife and it's making a lot of money it's a whole world and it's a rich world 
But is everybody in the industry making that money? Well, there we go. Isn't that the essential question? And the publishers, specifically and especially the kind of um, fancier publishers the or writers, the people who are more on the kind of like uh, comic opera, which turns into Broadway, but like more respectable, more um, upscale writers are like, we're not getting paid for this. Like, we're going to a 200-table dining hall where an orchestra is up there playing my music, and I am not getting a freaking penny. This is, like, not ideal. So they're trying to get paid. So they're trying to get paid, right? So they form a performing rights organization. A bunch of the publishers and a bunch of the leading songwriters form ASCAP, which is designed to get them paid. And the idea of ASCAP is basically that they will, for a set charge, basically clear you. And this is where it gets kind of complicated. And this is the crux of the ASCAP problem, right? Which is that this is kind of an informational problem of, of that's, in many ways, like out of people's ability to solve at the period of time, and also that they don't really want to solve. So ASCAP has a whole a ton of popular songs in their binders, right? Of that that are licensed through ASCAP, and they don't always remember which songs they have rights to. And it's you know it's it's a club on you know like a Wednesday at. 2 a.m. and who remembers what song they're playing exactly and especially because they're changing the lyrics right like who and and so ASCAP basically goes pay us a set fee every year and we won't sue you and if you don't pay us we're gonna send spies who are gonna sit there and (laughs) write down what songs you're performing and then sue you, which already gets into this like mafia-esque, like n- nice business you have here. Shame if something happened to it <laughs> vibe. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, under the guise of a not-for-profit organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically, ASCAP starts trying to do this in the teens. They have like no success. And then they have a court case that goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is like, if part of the reason that people are going to your restaurant is to hear music, then the music is not incidental to the restaurant experience. It's part of it, which means that your profits are based on this intellectual property, which means that, yeah, you owe the money. And ASCAP is like, yes. And then they make a lot of money. Right. And to be clear, like that money, what, just to be clear, the, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, as the name stands for, that money isn't just like going to like the club it's going to members who have like signed who have who have signed up with ASCAP in order to use them as an intermediary to get that money and then distribute it out to them yeah, yeah yeah and now here again is where we get to like another shady thing um which is complicated to what extent um for it reminds me in many ways of the black box of the Music Modernization Act and how that's paid out by market share. Um, ASCAP distributes the money it makes. It classes its composers into distinct classes based on basically like how much they like them. 
and then pays out different amounts of money based on what class you're in. So if ASCAP thinks that you're like a worthy composer, they pay you more. And if ASCAP doesn't think you're a worthy composer, let's say, for example, you're black, <laughs> like you're much less likely yeah. to get as much money from ASCAP. I mean, that to be very clear, but- that is... ASCAP nineteen twenty three and not ASCAP twenty twenty one. Right, but the re- so the reason behind that though is probably because and like tell me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is like the reason behind that is because if you're like a major composer, they they need you to be a part of ASCAP for ASCAP to go ahead and have any kind of like staying power. Yeah, that that is a hundred percent part of it. Also, it's because they're racist. It's no, 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 and, no, just and, <laughs> well, no. Yes, I mean, I mean, dear God, yes, like a hundred percent. But yeah. also, um, it's because the music industry, and this is a key part of this story overall, and very much has a lot to do with the present, is that these intermediary structures in the music industry are both about getting money from the outside world and about controlling competition within the music industry. So yeah. the people who set up ASCAP who are the dominant composers in 1917, the dom- more importantly, the dominant publishing houses in 1917, then immediately use ASCAP as a way to maintain their position within the industry versus new up-and-coming publishers. And the payout structure um, reflects that. And so battles over the payout structure are often proxies for battles between publishers. So how do we get to the so-called 1941 uh, consent decrees from there? From after we had the Supreme Court decision and like, you know, how do, how, do, how do we get to basically the, not even laws, the decrees, the direction that has been passed down from the Department of Justice and it still still exists today? So as you can imagine, right, what ASCAP's doing is like, it's a little iffy in some ways because it's, it's like helping, but it's also iffy. <laughs> like, it's helping, but it's also iffy. It's, um, I mean, I am by no means a uh, uh, an expert on monopoly law, but it's definitely saying that it's it's in some ways in, in restraint of competition, right? It says like there's a single amount. All the songwriters and publishers are gonna agree together to charge a single amount for. And then be able to extort, or extort is a, such a harsh word, um, <laughs> request that amount of money. Strongly from, request. Strongly <laughs> request that amount of money. It would from, be in your interest if you... <laughs> well, they also like wouldn't tell people what songs were ASCAP songs necessarily. <laughs> They'd just say, uh, yeah, you've yeah. infringed on ASCAP. <laughs> right. They're like, oh, okay. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and this gets into really complicated battles with other industries really quickly. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Incredibly Definitely. complicated battles with the, like, theater industry. Right, um, right. And by, sorry, by this time, it's movie theaters, right? Which have music being played in them or music on film. And in, in many ways, the biggest fight they get into, though, is with radio. And that's a fight that kind of takes over, like, a 20-year period and and i've just put like a little wedge into this just real quick and this is the reason why when i said at the top of the second half of the show here when i was talking about 800 submissions in this like two year long review is because a lot of these other industries that aren't part of the music industry are going to be affected by these consent decrees being changed and so for therefore restaurants 
uh, I guess theater, radio, other places, other industries are all going to be impacted by this. And so they all want to have a say. So what you're talking about right now, which happened 90 years ago, you know, is the reason <laughs> that this is also so complicated today. No, 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 100%. And, and, and again, it becomes even more complicated because another player enters this fray, and that is BMI. And basically, ASCAP, radio becomes the, the dominant form of uh, popular music technology in the 30s, late 20s, 30s. Um, you can listen to our um, uh, interview with Carl, Kyle Barnett about that, right? That... The radio industry comes in, record sales fall, that really impacts how much money the publishers are getting. Sheet music is down pretty consistently as kind of piano playing stops being as central um, as people start liking to hear. Forget exactly who said this, but there's a line that America stopped singing and started dancing. And that changes, right? Means you're not going to go home and sit around the piano, which is what people very much did in the teens. They're going to go out to, uh, as unimaginable as it is in this moment, they'd go out to a nightclub and dance in large social groups. Imagine that, Saxon. <laughs> yeah. Will it ever happen again? That is oh, the question man. for another day. <laughs> yeah. So basically, um, ASCAP's in this, des- in this intense battle with the radio industry, which is, as always, dominated by, like, two or three major companies, right. um, which are also massive international conglomerates that make all the radio equipment. And then, you know, we're not going to get into, like, the saga of RCA right now. But basically, For another they're episode. demanding pretty high percentages of the overall amount of income for these radio shows. They're up somewhere, like, a high like 7.5% of how, how much money the radio company is making. Cause they're like, you're using ASCAP, music. ASCAP's demanding. And the radio, right. ASCAP is, yeah. ASCAP's demanding that, which is yeah. a big demand. 7.5% is a sure. large percentage. And so the radio is like, maybe what if we just start our own PRO? That's our friend. What, and that charges us less. And then what if we sign up people you know, smaller publishers, publishers who are mad about the fact that the existing kind of more established publishers get a better deal in ASCAP. What if we say that as a songwriter, we won't charge you for joining like ASCAP will? <laughs> ASCAP also had like, you had to have a certain number of published songs to join. So BMI makes a play for that. And basically, um, it, there's a debate about how involved the radio companies are. And I've read accounts everywhere from this is a radio company thing to the radio companies offered their tentative support. Regardless, BMI emerges as this second other competitor that then immediately does the exact same kind of stuff that ASCAP does. And all of a sudden now you have to pay out to both <laughs> for whichever songs you might have. Of course. Um, there's some wild stuff in there. We should do a whole episode about that. There's a, a ASCAP pulls all of its songs off the radio and for a while, radio just switches entirely to, because BMI didn't really have enough songs, they switched just to public domain songs. So they just start playing like Twinkle, Twinkle, <laughs> Little Town Star. Races. Yeah, yeah, no, literally. They do like Camp Town Races and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, but like jazz arrangements of them. Hmm, I was hearing Irvin Berlin the other day, and now I'm hearing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's like a wild, it, it lasts for like a year. It's wild. Like, <laughs> Crazy times. Yeah, 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 which I don't know, not not to like fast forward, but I feel like you know, it's not like totally outside the realm of possibility that this might not 
actually happen in regards to streaming at some point <laughs> maybe not in relation to like say like bmi or ascap but maybe like in a, like you know the entirety of universal music group or something very possible oh yeah totally possible and and there there was i think there was the um oh man i believe it was the netherlands though i could be wrong but like um one of one one of the kind of like low countries um it might have been denmark so like <laughs> at, don't at me i'm really sorry um had a dispute with youtube the the publishing this their version of a pro and pulled everything all of their stuff every all, all their stuff so you couldn't hear golden earring on youtube i guess uh, <laughs> wow that's no a reference blue. uh right so okay so we got so we got bmi we got ascap we got the radio we got a war between pros and everybody trying to like jockey for money you got some shady stuff going on so so where does it go from here and basically partially as a result of of right and you have to remember this is a moment when the government is genuinely interventionist, when the government's really cracking down on monopolies. And what you have here is like all kinds of interconnected cartel-like behavior. And the government's like, guys, 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 guys. Let's clean this up. Yeah. Let's clean this up. And basically, and this is kind of another recurring... Let's drain the swamp. Well, it, Just kidding. It's kind of complicated <laughs> because it's sort of... Like all these it's things, all it's a two. It's yeah, it's it's all a swamp, right? So basically, um, the consent decrees. Some people thought that they were just totally like the restaurant groups were like these guys are unacceptable, and clearly the ASCAP was like we should be able to charge whatever the market could bear, and the government stepped in, and it's kind of a two-edged sword, right? At one point, the government says, "Okay, we're gonna we think that this is." There's monopolistic activity here. We think that you're acting in restraint of trade. But we also think that having everyone try to license, that, th- that there's a valuable, important market function that these organizations are playing, that having every composer, every publisher independently <laughs> deal with every restaurant in America mess. is impossible. It's, possible. it's an right. absolute mess. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's just not possible. And so... Something like this probably needs to exist. Yeah, like ASCAP and BMI need to exist, but it's like maybe the behavior and the way that they carry out their business needs to change. Yeah, and so they put in this consent decree, basically, where ASCAP said that, I don't know as much about the details of BMIs. I know a little bit about ASCAPs. which is kind of um, develops in a process over like, I think, 10 years between like 31 and 40 where like they have a sweetheart deal and then like they piss off the government and then the government's like, well, we're going to really get, get angry at you. And ASCAP's like, whoa, 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 we're sorry. And, and like in a way it's, it's, it's essentially a agreement, kind of like almost like a handshake agreement, right? Which is like that it's not a law, but it's basically like a handshake agreement as, as the way I understand it between the government and these organizations with the threat of like, if you act, continue to act outside of this, agreement this handshake agreement will come down on yeah, you exactly. And, yeah exactly and and, yeah. and basically what the government says is that you can keep doing what you're doing which is a huge victory for ascap because it's the sure. most legitimation of their activities since that initial supreme court decision said that what they were doing was legal at all and in particular it it put into some sort of law the idea that they could give out a blanket license which is for a set amount of money a year you have right to play all ASCAP songs, as many ASCAP songs as you want. 
and how much you have to pay depends on how big you are, how uh, how many how big an estimate audience you have, whether you're you know community radio. There's all kinds of a complicated like a uh, uh, complicated charting out of how much you have to pay. But basically, you pay a certain amount and then you're set. You're good. And these still exist today. The whole but and what's also interesting is that this reevaluation of these ancient eighty-year-old consent decrees. ASCAP wants them changed now, and as far as I'm aware, so does BMI, and they're the ones actually really pushing for these changes. And as, as you might have noticed, the world and the music industry has just changed a little, just a bit from uh, the 1940s. So, so these f- things called Spotify and Pandora, and they have a bit of an influence uh, if you've listened to any of our shows. So yeah, so at, at like a fundamental level, though, the, the other side, and this is what ASCAP really wants changed, right? Or at least begin to be changed. And the other thing is the government starts setting says that it has is going to play a role in what ASCAP could charge. And how much of that role exists changes over time. But basically it says like ASCAP, you can negotiate with the licensees, the people who are trying to, to get access to your stuff. But if you guys can't come to an agreement, it's going to go to this rate court. And the rate court is going to decide based off of, and again, we're not going to get into legislative history here, a changing set of criterion over time. And there's a lot of <laughs> hemming and hawing and lobbying about like, what are the criteria and who, like literally like which judges from which circuit are going to be making yeah. these decisions. This is a huge yeah. part of the Music Modernization Act that is like deep, deep in the weeds is the change from two judges to to a wheel or whatever, like a roulette yeah. or whatever they oh, call yeah, it a, a roulette of, of judges different judges exactly yeah. right so so and all and, from the southern district of new york and, to, and, to, to interpret that how you like <laughs> you know and and any and any small change to this could have huge payout uh differences in terms of payout but basically saying the government has a role in because this needs to exist because it breaks certain kinds of competitive laws the government needs to have a role in determining how the system is going to function and that's kind of the basic basis of the consent decrees. And that's more or less how they've existed since. And so when the government thought about getting rid of them, because there's a big change that in the 40s, consent decrees have no expiration. Now they do. They've got sunset clauses. So the government put this in in 1940 and was just like, and this is how it'll be for all time. <laughs> so if they got rid of it, you know, kind of a little bit, and this is my sense of like what they saw. They were like, "Oh man, all all hell might break loose." Like, who knows what happens? Yeah, yeah. That, like, I think that like I don't have the quote in front of me. I'm paraphrasing, but out of all people, like Lindsey Graham was one who was who came out and commented about the possibility of these uh, consent decrees going away, and was extremely concerned about how it would cause like mass chaos. And I think. He, you know, he's he's not wrong. It would cause a lot of issues, but what it could also cause, if I'm understanding and interpreting this tangled web, is that it could mean that ASCAP and BMI could start demanding more for the artists that are represented by them, and that's obviously like a huge issue that's been going on and what we talk about the last couple of years, especially when it comes to streaming services and like payouts. Yeah, exactly. And so this is kind of all summed up in like. I think the stakes of this negotiation are summed up in, in yeah this, in, this and this is why it's important in, in, in yeah. these two these two potential futures that are being talked about 
and one is uh, something that the PROs want, and one is something that the PROs very much don't want. Or the PROs and publishers, it's kind of complicated. Um, the PROs want better, you know, uh, uh, more flexible, more market-focused rate board decisions. They want more flexibility. They want these consent decrees to no longer exist forever. They want to transition into more of an open market thing. I mean, one of the, mo- the interesting ideas that there's been a big fight about is the idea of selective withdrawal. Yeah, that's a huge um, issue that they've been talking about. So selective withdrawal is this idea that basically rights holders, right? So a publisher could withdraw from part of the PRO blanket license, but not all of it. So you can always negotiate, and, and this is where get, this gets kind of in the weeds, you can always negotiate one-on-one with a, uh, like a copyright holder, right? So I'm a restaurant, Saxon. I want to license your song. I could either get a blanket license from ASCAP, which would be, you'd be included in, or because you're going to be an ASCAP, of course you're an ASCAP, or else like the, you know, Charlie Shack down the road, when they play your song, you're not going to get paid. Right. But let's say for some reason, I can give you a specific proposition that's different. You know, we can make a deal that goes outside of the bounds of the overall blanket uh, license, or if the blanket license is lower, I can just go with that. So, so the selective withdrawal is the idea that, like, it's kind of an expansion of that idea, right? So basically... Or even maybe kind of in reverse, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so ba- basically they're saying they want to be able to selectively withdraw from the relationship to the digital streaming services while keeping, like, all the restaurant licenses. No publisher wants to actually have to deal with, like, is their song being played at Pizza Hut? But they do really want to be able to negotiate a different deal with Spotify. Right. And so that's one idea. The The flip side is, is something called 100% licensing, which basically is there's more, most pop songs now have multiple songwriters. They'll belong to different performing rights organizations. And certain licensees that include streaming services want to be able to say, well, if we have an agreement with one of them, we have an agreement with 100% of the song. And the performer's organization is like, no, you have to make agreements with all of us. And so that kind of gives you the, the, like a, a sense of the, like the kind of landscape, the kind of the stakes of this fight. Right. right? This and fight that's now been kicked on down the road because on one side, it's like, could the PROs be like totally hamstrung? On the other side, it's, side, it's like, could the PROs start to really throw their weight around? Yeah, and so that's just a real overview of just some of the many issues that are involved with these ancient 80-year-old quote-unquote decrees that are currently that were being debated about for the last two years, but essentially have been kicked down the road to the Biden administration and possibly beyond. And obviously there's different positions and so many different industries involved. But I guess like maybe sort of to wrap up, you know, because I think we just really wanted to bring a spotlight to this issue, make it a little bit more clear, give a little bit of history, because it could have a huge effect you know, on streaming, on companies like Spotify, on payouts for artists, you know, and it is a sort of like watch this space situation at this point. But maybe just to wrap up, Sam, maybe we could just go, you know, maybe I'd, I'd just be curious, like, what is your kind of opinion about changing these dissent decrees and like, and the various sort of interests, particularly involved, particularly the interest of a lot of the uh, parties involved that we often talk about on here. So of course, streaming services, payout to artists and so on. I was thinking about this a lot, right? This, this kind of question, because 
sometimes there's a little bit of like six of one, half a dozen of the other, right? That these are all, these systems are, are built into so much of how the music industry functions. And in, so much of that is this incredibly exploitative system. And it's like, I don't know what actually ends up being best for the artists. Cause it seems like often that it's filtered through so many levels of this kind of like a, these complicated interest group bureaucracies. But right. I, I guess the thing that, that, that I got thinking about, right. The, the basic government proposition, right. That these organizations are a little bit monopolistic, but also that they need to exist for like any kind of reasonable music industry to exist. And, and that's a kind of funny class of like entity in society, right? This idea that like actually corporations, it's not even that like corporations are good or corporations are bad. It's this very like progressive era idea that like corporations, that we live in a fundamentally complex society, that the fantasy of either like everyone one by one, like making decisions to be good or like, you know, and like creating solidarity sure. or like one by one, like being like interested in their own self-interest and that driving the machine of capitalism that like, regardless, like we live in a complex society where large structures and like large groups and organizations like need to exist in order for anything to function. And it's this kind of very like early 20th century, like clear eyed look at that. And being like, well, these organizations, we don't love them, but like they need to exist because th- th- we live in this like, you know, we're trying to make sure that a song that one guy wrote in New York City, when it's being played all over the country, he sure. gets paid because that's how there's going to be a music industry at all. And like, in some ways that cuts against like this fundamentally individualistic vision, this like, like, I hate to put like a buzzword out there, but like this very like neoliberal vision of like, actually it's free agents working in a marketplace. And it's like, no, at a fundamental level, the basis of the music industry of the modern performing rights part of the music industry is based on the idea that we aren't fundamentally individuals, that fundamentally we're large, complicated social structures. And that approaching this from the individual level is a mistake and doesn't make sense. And that ratifying that vision of society and having that vision of society embedded so deeply in the architecture of the music industry is in some ways like really fascinating. And I sort of feel like the way to do it, like my takeaway is like, I feel like that, that clear eyed vision and a like belief in those kind of large scale or social organizations should be pulled through the whole music industry. Right. It shouldn't be, it's like, if what you're saying that this functions at this large level, like let you can do other kinds of ameliorative actions with that kind of social vision. I, again, I think about like having some of this like like school funding for music programs. Like if we want there to be musicians, kids need to learn how to play music and that should be part of the music industry because actually it's not like all of a sudden one day you enter the market as this like radical free agent. It's like, no, you come from a community. And if you want that community to produce music, you need music making institutions and those institutions need funding. And like the record labels, the music industry should pay for those institutions because like they profit from it and they need them to exist. And like, of course that's like this, like, you know, that's not going to happen, but like, I don't know. It's crazy that like, 
the government <laughs> and the music industry admits that at one level and then is like but uh free market <laughs> you know um yeah yeah but like but like but the, and but like the ceo of spotify is like individual music makers need to adjust to the conditions of digital production and release five albums a year and it's like no individual actions doesn't fix this problem it's gotta be like a larger vision and that's and you admitted that already when you have a pro yeah no exactly yeah and i think that you know a lot of this also just kind of i guess depends on you know for people like us who are are not involved in these decisions whatsoever are just cheering from the sidelines waving a flag like i think it really kind of comes down to what side you fall on where you know if you're just kind of like a passive consumer who just wants like an ease of listening you know and be able to just like go to one place to get all your music then you know maybe you fall you fall on one side but if you're somebody who is more invested on artists being able to you know have more of a say and thus demand more whether it's payouts or just you know say or representation on these platforms then you know maybe you're falling on the side that maybe these consent decrees should maybe go away of course it gets way more complicated than that but i think that anything that could give more power to artists as a collective group with a shared interest of earning better payouts and having more of a say is probably you know my personal opinion at least even if it causes maybe a little bit of chaos and even if it means that maybe you have to go back to going to four different places to get your music i'm for it but then again, what the government might decide and who, who has the strongest lawyers and what the general people want, uh, it's, it's hard to say. But it is an important issue that I think that uh, obviously did not get solved as their decision to kick it down the road. But it is something that we, sh- we will continue to pay attention to. And now hopefully the next time you see a headline in the uh, New York Times about consent decrees in the music industry, you'll have a, bit, a little bit of a better understanding of it. Yeah. So that will go ahead and do it for today. But we have one more announcement. We now have a Substack. Well, it's actually a newsletter, and it's on Substack. And it's all just a part of our continual expansion of Money for Nothing. We plan on including extra links in there and possibly some bonus interviews. And just keeping you up to date with everything that we're going to be doing in 2021. If you'd like to subscribe to that, just go to moneyfornothing.substack.com, and there's a subscribe button on the page that's money for nothing uh four is the number four just like the way that it is in our title of our podcast thanks for listening again we'll be back in two weeks music by bird language i'm saxon baird with sandbagger as always see you soon (laughs) 